Good afternoon and welcome to Midday Magazine for April 28th. Happy Friday. I'm Shelby Herbert reporting for KFSK. Alaska's mariculture industry was awarded $49 million in federal funding last year to develop the state's burgeoning kelp market. Now, industry leaders are looking across the Pacific Ocean for inspiration on how to keep the state's kelp scene growing. Kirsten Dobrith reports in Kodiak. Nick Mangini is a kelp farmer and mariculture director for the Southwest Alaska Municipal Conference. He was in South Korea earlier this month touring kelp farms and processing facilities. Asian countries, including South Korea, make up the bulk of the world's kelp market. Every time I go to a conference or something where it's all mariculture-related business people, whether that be farmers or industry, you kind of get this buzz and everybody gets excited and it's what keeps us going right now. Mangini and his colleagues are looking to countries like South Korea for inspiration as Alaska overcomes well-documented hurdles in its own budding industry. For one, the state has a processing gap when it comes to kelp. That's where Mangini says the South Korean farmers have a big advantage. They bring in the kelp and hand lay it out in a field and let it air dry where we don't have that climate that would allow that, number one, and the rules through the FDA are just going to be way too stringent to make something like that happen. Mangini says many kelp farms in South Korea also use seaweed and shellfish cultivation in tandem to maximize their crop. 70% of the species of kelp that's the most similar to what I grow comes straight off a farm and goes straight into an abalone culture to feed the abalone year-round. The South Korean visit was sponsored by the World Wildlife Fund and included other kelp farmers and processors from North America and Europe. Mangini says connecting with them was just as informative as meeting with the trip's South Korean hosts. Bouncing ideas off each other, talking about the design of our farms, the way that they process in New England, possibilities for future collaborations with people from the East Coast and the West Coast, people from Canada and Alaska, um, even into Europe. Mangini was one of Alaska's first kelp farmers. He put in his application for a plot by Near Island, right near the city of Kodiak, in 2016, and harvested his first crop the year after that. Two other people started out the same year as him. It's taken off since then. And just last year, Alaska kelp farmers harvested 650,000 pounds of seaweed. That's a tiny fraction compared to South Korea's production. But Mangini says Alaska's mariculture industry has the potential to be a leader by volume, just like its fin fish fisheries. He says another big step is getting commercial fishermen to see the industry's value as a source of income in between fishing seasons. I would just hope that we could work together and they could see this as an opportunity for them to use their boats or even, you know, have their own farms in the future. Mangini says with federal funds on the way, there's real momentum for the industry in the state. He's hopeful lessons learned from the trip will help ease some of the growing pains. In Kodiak, I'm Kirsten Dobrath. The Northwest Arctic and North Slope boroughs met in Anchorage earlier this month to pass a joint resolution supporting the Ambler Road project. If completed, the road would span more than 200 miles west from the Dalton Highway to a mining region just south of the Brooks Range. Even though the two go- borough governments are aligned in their support of the development, many residents of the Northwest Arctic believe that their voices are not being heard. And some have started a new grassroots organization to fight back. Desiree Hagen reports from Kotzebue. 
After learning about the joint resolution, Ruth Eden had questions. I don't know if, if the people who did the voting, did they ask people in their communities? Did they, did they really go out and try? I mean, I was hitting the streets. Eaton has lived in the region for more than four decades. Last month, she traveled up the Kobuk River by dog sled, going door to door, collecting signatures from residents opposed to the Ambler Road in several remote Northwest Arctic communities. Last week, she was in Washington, D.C., visiting with Representative Mary Peltola to express concerns over what Eaton says is a misrepresentation of the region's support for the proposed road. The Northwest Arctic region is not united in support of the Ambler Road. The proposed Ambler Road project has been a source of controversy for more than a decade now. The road would pass through the gates of the Arctic National Park and Preserve on its way to the Ambler Mining District, an area with large deposits of copper, zinc, and other strategic metals. Supporters say access to the mining region will provide economic opportunities and generate tax revenue for rural residents already struggling with the high cost of living. Opponents cite fears about harm to subsistence food sources and caribou herds, as well as other potential changes the proposed road could usher in. The project's initial environmental review by the federal government was suspended, in part because of a lack of public engagement and tribal consultation. Failures to properly analyze cultural and subsistence impacts were also cited. Now the project is awaiting approval of the revised version, called a Supplemental Environmental Impact Statement. The boroughs met in Anchorage earlier this month to express their support of a speedy supplemental EIS process. Officials at the meeting said they tried to set up a meeting in Kotzebue, but couldn't make it work due to time constraints. China Kantner grew up between Ambler and Paranaktagruk, about 30 miles downriver from the village of Ambler. She spoke at Tuesday's Northwest Arctic Borough Assembly meeting. Like Eaton, she has been visiting villages in the region to hear from the people who live there. Uh, People that we have talked to want to protect their subsistence way of life, protect their families from violence against women, uh, protect their communities from drugs and alcohol that may be brought in on the road. But that resolution voted on um, in Anchorage assumes that mega development and subsistence can coexist. Kantner represents Protect the Kobuk, a newly formed grassroots organization opposed to the road. The only requirement is that members must either have a tribal affiliation or be a current resident of the Northwest Arctic. Kantner says in four weeks, her group has collected over 230 signatures from members of every tribe in the region. She says the borough's claim that the region supports the project is inaccurate. The resolution that was voted on then is contrary to, in tone, to many of the conversations that um, I and other Protect the Kobuk members have had in the Upper Kobuk and also in Kotzebue. Kantner says many of the people she spoke with are worried about a staple subsistence food and beloved animal of the Arctic. And one of the most common concerns was the potential effect of the road on the caribou migration. The Western Arctic caribou herd, which passes through the region, was previously one of the largest caribou herds in the world. The herd population peaked in 2003 and has declined by over 300 
5,000 in just two decades. Opponents fear the effects large-scale mining operations could have on the fragile caribou population. Nathan Hadley Jr. is the president of the Northwest Arctic Borough Assembly. He supports the road as a potential economic engine. The borough gets most of its money from taxes on the Red Dog Mine, an open pit lead and zinc mine 80 miles north of Kotzebue, which could run out of ore in less than 10 years unless it's expanded. Tech, the Canadian company that owns Red Dog, and the borough have a payment in lieu of taxes, or PILT agreement, which has supplied millions to pay for borough schools and other services. Some, like Hadley, fear how the region will support itself in the near future. You know, the borough provides a lot of services to the villages, and without uh, this payment in lieu of taxes, like, for example, the Red Dog Mine, the borough wouldn't be able to... um, provide services that the borough is providing now. Hadley grew up and represents the small community of Buckland, a village of around 400 people, 75 miles southeast of Kotzebue. He says the borough is in support of responsible development in the region, in part because of some of the challenges rural residents face. Many people in our villages that has to choose what bill they're going to be behind on The Bureau of Land Management will be in the Northwest Arctic region this week consulting with tribes as the feds decide whether to approve the project's new environmental analysis. The public is encouraged to attend. The Alaska Industrial Development and Export Authority, or ADA, one of the proposed road's primary funders, will also be in the region this week speaking at job fairs. In Kotzebue, I'm Desiree Hagan. Mark Cook Jr. is the third person to die in the Alaska Department of Corrections custody this year. His family says he died by suicide after hanging himself at Lemon Creek Correctional Center in Juneau, where they say he'd spent weeks in solitary confinement with debilitating back pain. He was 27 years old. Yvonne Crumry spoke with his family and has this story. And as a warning, this story contains descriptions of suicide. In an intensive care unit at Bartlett Regional Hospital, Yadukwe Mark Cook Jr. was on life support Monday. He'd been declared dead, but he's an organ donor, so he remained hooked up to the machines. Cook's family sang a Klingit entrance and exit song often used for ceremonies. Some read scripture and prayers. Ernestine Hanlon Abel spoke to her grandson in his hospital bed. We're going to do a song for you. This is to help you exit this physical world and you are entering a new journey. Mark's death fits a pattern. In a recent investigation, the Anchorage Daily News reported that suicides in Alaska jails spiked last year and that the department has long faced criticism that it does not do enough to prevent suicides. These deaths were all among people who were awaiting trial. Hanlon Abel says her grandson was the best Hlingit dancer she's ever seen. But in February, he visited the Huna Health Clinic with the back injury and left with pain so bad he could barely walk. Cook's family says he got upset at the clinic, yelled and threatened to sue, the next day, Huna police arrested him on misdemeanor charges of trespassing and property damage. 
Cook was later transferred to Lemon Creek because his family said he could not get the medical care he needed at the Huna Jail. They said they were in touch with him throughout his time at Lemon Creek, and he didn't get much care there either. And family members say that because of his back problems, Cook was placed in conditions that amounted to solitary confinement about three weeks ago. Cook's father, Mark Cook Sr., said he spoke with an Alaska state trooper in the emergency room about what happened on April 22nd. According to Cook Sr., the trooper said that Cook used his bedsheets to hang himself from a vent after putting tape over the room's security camera, and that it was about 30 minutes before security found him. It shouldn't have happened. He has a, that was cruel and unusual punishment in that jail. He had taped up the camera. Why didn't they tape it? And they didn't find him for over half an hour at the end That other voice is Jody Schrock, Cook's mother. She believes his suicide was a result of untreated back pain and solitary confinement. He couldn't handle the pain anymore. They just threw him in a cage and left him there. He never would have killed himself had he gotten help for what was wrong with him. The troopers confirmed the manner of Cook's death, but referred KTOO to the Department of Corrections for details. The department did not answer questions about whether they followed their suicide prevention procedures. Megan Edge is with the American Civil Liberties Union in Alaska. She said her organization has heard from a number of people placed in what amounted to solitary confinement for medical reasons. DOC often says that, you know, it's it's not solitary confinement. They're not in trouble, but they're living in conditions of confinement that are identical to solitary confinement. Edge said solitary confinement is inhumane and that the Department of Corrections hasn't explained why inmates with medical issues would face those conditions. A department spokesperson told KTOO that it, quote, does not practice true solitary confinement since most cells have two bunks, unquote, but declined to comment on whether Cook was kept separate from other inmates. Meanwhile, Cook's family thinks he should not have been in jail at all. Family members say they feel Cook's bail was unreasonably high for the offense, and they don't understand why a judge said Cook could not stay with his grandparents if he was released. Edge said it's important to remember that Cook had yet to go to trial for his case which involved two misdemeanors. On Tuesday at a Juno hotel, 10 of Cook's loved ones shared stories about who he was, often speaking of his giving spirit. In his 27 years, Cook was a father, an EMT, and a musician. Hanlon Abel said she hopes her grandson's choice to be an organ donor will mean that other families won't have to grieve for their child. That's the way he was. He's gone and he's so given. Cook Sr. said hospital staff told him that up to a dozen people could benefit from his son's organ donations. In Juneau, I'm Yvonne Cormery. KFSK is celebrating National Poetry Month by sharing poetry readings each weekday. Today's poetry reading features Abby Hardy. Hardy. My name is Abby Hardy, and I will be reciting Do Not Go Gentle Into That Good Night by Dylan Thomas. Do not go gentle into that good night. Old age should burn and rave at close of day. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Though wise men at their end know dark is right, because their words have fort, no lightning, they do not go gentle into that good night. Good men, the last wave by, crying how bright their frail deeds might have danced in a green bay. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Wild men who caught and sang the sun in flight, and learned too late they grieved it on its way, do not go gentle into that good night. Grave men, near death, who see with blinding sight, blind eyes could blaze like meteors and be gay. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. 
And you, my father, there on that sad height, curse, bless me now with your fierce tears, I pray. Do not go gentle into that good night. Rage, rage against the dying of the light.